Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Everybody, and it's a real treat to be returning to the AKC for the second time this year. And thank you very much, Dan, for the invitation. And it's really um, amazing to be in a room here with you all as well. So I was just saying to Claire that this is the first time that I've given a lecture in person like this for a couple of years. And so I'm a bit nervous and uncertain about it, um, to be open with you about giving a live lecture like this. And it's something new in a way to be engaging in what we've come to call synchronous speech. So that is speech in the moment, after years of pre-recording lectures now. But my uncertainty also relates to the risks associated with the difficult topic that I want to talk about. Um, of secularism, of religion, and of student activism relating to Palestine, Israel. So these um, difficult topics that I'm wanting to talk with you about today. And the title of my talk is Free Speech in the Secular University. So it's a topic that's going to build on previous talks in this series, so particularly inspired by Dan's discussion of the concept of radical religion and radicalisation, as well as Bobby Duffy's talk on culture wars. So I want to take up these themes and I want to turn our focus back onto ourselves and to think about universities and to think about King's itself as a democratic space in which questions and tensions over radical religion unfold. Why make this lecture about free speech and how does this connect with our theme of radical religion? So you might recall that towards the end of his lecture, Bobby Duffy gave a short intro to his current research, a study exploring tensions between freedom of speech and freedom from harm. And he emphasised that higher education policymakers are very preoccupied with this question of free speech. We learnt how policymakers' understandings of this issue are firmly rooted in a juridical rights-based model that is on balancing the right to speech with the right not to be harmed and seeking a kind of legalistic distinction between harm when speech infringes rights and offence when it does not. Alongside this, Bobby Duffy framed his research on free speech around how to mitigate against what he called the chilling effect in public debate. And this is connected to the idea coming out of the culture wars that people are being prevented by so-called woke activists from expressing views that might be controversial. So this picture of chilled speech is one that I'm going to return to in terms of thinking in a deep way about what it means to speak freely. And I'll be drawing on anthropologist Vina Das's attention to registers of language. So I'd like us to think about how public scripts can become frozen and what it might take for our speech and our words to come to life. 
Bobby ended his talk by asking about the kind of practical event interventions that are possible to help people feel more comfortable expressing views that might be controversial. Adding, particularly in a university environment, because that rig rigorous debate is what we're supposed to be about. So I want to try to liberate our thinking about what it means to imagine the university as a space of freedom, of knowledge and learning, and to amplify some alternatives to the noisy and often unreflective calls for academic free speech and free expression in terms of rigorous debate, and to ask what do we really mean, what do we want to mean by these terms? My approach is going to take shape in an ethnographic register. This means I'm going to share some fine-grained insights developed over some years of paying close attention to how campus debates around free speech unfold within UK campuses. And I want to amplify the singular voices, and the notion of voice is very important to my claims, of students who have been silenced in various ways, including in speaking from Muslim and Jewish perspectives within our institutions. So I'm going to focus on material drawn from my research, exploring the politics of Palestine, Israel, and British universities. And it's, of course, an incredibly fraught issue, which I'm sure you're aware is a very live vector for debates over free speech, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and allegations of religious extremism. So I'm going to offer a couple of scenes which took place in a Russell Group institution a few years ago, which I'll suggest exemplify different genres of communication, that is, repetitive and stylized ways through which questions of social justice and free speech are performed within our university institutions. I'm going to develop the claim that one of the events that I'm going to talk about, an academic debate, can helpfully be understood as a performance of secularism within the university. So I'll be saying more about what I mean by secularism in ways that move beyond conventional understandings. I'm going to be trying to show that secularism, secularism doesn't just connote the neutrality of the university with respect to religion and should not just be reduced to the identity of non-religious staff or students. Rather, I'm going to frame secularism as a dynamic form of power within Western universities that mandates and mobilizes a particular set of moral and political ideas about what constitutes freedom, speech, and the good citizen. And I'll frame this, secular, this as a secular power insofar as it marginalizes minority religious approaches to ethics and knowledge and questions of justice within the campus. So focusing on the Palestine-Israel case, I'm going to ask what form of freedom does the sec a secular vision of free speech support? And how might we move beyond secular liberal ideas of mastery and autonomy that this ideology, I will argue, demands of our community? So as Dan discussed, overlaid onto debates about free speech in the kind of war on terror era are long-term policies targeted at preventing so-called violent extremism on campus. And here, the same conservative politicians advocating for free speech against woke censorship have also highlighted the dangers posed by allowing so-called radical religious, mainly used as a proxy for Islamic, speech on in UK campuses. 
So in the latter part of the lecture, I'm going to take up Dan's claim that there is much to be gained by moving beyond this defensive framing of religious others and minority religious traditions. And um, I'm going to say that we ask that we think of radical religion as a force for creativity in the university. So I'm going to make a pitch for marginalised Islamic and Jewish framings of free speech in relation to Palestine, Israel. And by this I mean alternative practices of speaking, listening, learning and cultivating knowledge that value different voices and that I will suggest offer us a more radical hope for cultivating free speech at King's and beyond. So not much to cover then in, <laughs> in however long we've got left. <laughs> but um, okay, so... Let's just focus on the case of Palestine-Israel. So I'm going to highlight the context for my topic today. And I just want to draw your attention to um, the ways in which these very vexed conflicts over Palestine-Israel on campus are very close to home. So on the left of this slide is a media report of a high-profile incident which took place at King's a few years ago in 2018. Some of you may remember this. Daniel Meridor, an Israeli politician and past member of Benjamin Netanyahu's government, was invited to speak at King's at an event co-hosted by the Student Israel Society. And this prompted a protest by members of the Palestine Society who lined the hallways of the Strand campus, shouting, shame, shame, and were accused by representatives of the Israel Society of intimidating attendees and preventing free debate. So as I'm going to discuss more, campus disputes over Palestine-Israel often have a ritual-like quality. They follow familiar scripts that bring with them the language and passions of righteousness, outrage and shame. And as we can see from the second uh, clip that I've put up on the, um, on the other side of this slide, um, this is a more recent article in the New Arab about activism at King's. The absolute moral value of the right to free speech and of the right to be protected from harm is mobilized by speakers and activists on all sides against each other. So pro-Palestinian activists have claimed that what's really at stake in these disputes is the securitization of the campus, the use by university managers and policymakers of an Islamophobic discourse which treats the association between Islam and politics on campus as inherently dangerous and shuts down Muslim students' legitimate right to free expression as protest. This is just one aspect of how these debates unfold in relation to religion. Meanwhile, representatives of student Jewish and Israel societies argue that pro-Palestinian protesters are threatening free speech, understood as respectful, informed dialogue, via forms of intimidation that border on anti-Semitism. Now, if we focus for a moment longer on the 2018 dispute over um, Dan Meridor, I'd like to draw your attention to a public statement that was issued by Kings after this event. They announced a review of their processes for approving events and stated, universities have a unique challenge to create environments in which open and uncensored debate from all sides on issues of political, scientific, moral, ethical and religious significance can take place without fear of intimidation and within the framework of the law. So activists engaged with Palestine-Israel are coming together around what we can think of as a moral bedrock 
we might say, a sacred value that is embedded in and affirmed by the university itself. The principles of free speech and freedom from harm are treated as immutable beyond question. And the point that I want to kind of push in this lecture is that this makes it very difficult for us to think creatively about what it actually means for us to speak freely. So in my book-length discussion of these dynamics, I claim that one reason why this issue is so potent for universities is that it forces institutions to grapple in the name of free speech with what political philosopher Nancy Fraser terms abnormal justice. This means that in mobilising the value of free speech, universities are paradoxically involved in the task of trying to set secure and absolute boundaries over who can claim justice and recognition within an increasingly globalised academic community and with how these claims for justice, how they can be spoken and heard. And this includes, in relation to the question of Palestine-Israel, policing and regulating the participation of Muslims and Jews as Muslims and Jews, and limiting forms of speech that are expressed within a religious register. So in order to illustrate this, I'm going to turn to share the details of two campus events drawn from my research, which exemplify generic ways that the politics of Palestine-Israel plays out in universities. So they recur over time, these generic forms of communication, and across different campus contexts. And while I'm talking, I'd like you to think about the following questions. So what is the nature of speech about Palestine-Israel within university campuses? And what does this reveal about the concept and function of secular freedom within our institutions? Let me take you back to the start of my fieldwork across three university campuses when I was exploring the dynamics and experiences of Palestine-Israel politics in universities. And my fieldwork occurred in the aftermath of the widespread wave of UK university protests and occupations in response to the 2009 Gaza war, which was also known as Operation Cast Lead. I'm going to focus on... Um, an institution that I'll call Old University, a prestigious university with a global reputation. And to set a bit of context in terms of the build-up to the events that I'll describe, students at Old University have been subject to various external policy-driven initiatives aimed at enhancing good campus relations. And there had been quite a recent outcry about some research that had been conducted by a partisan conservative think tank that had been covertly monitoring and reporting on the activities of the Student Islamic Society. And this was part and parcel of a longer history of students on the campus negotiating and protesting against what they framed as the asymmetrical treatment of activists and the institution's attempts to set ground rules of civilised debate. So in late 2010, controversy erupted on the campus. The Student Palestine Society organised a public talk by a controversial Palestinian journalist I'll call him Abdul al-Masi, that descended into violent exchanges between participating students. Speaking on the very provocative subject of the Zionist lobby, al-Masi took up a position of radical ambiguity, 
So simultaneously expressing victimhood, his own Palestinian victimhood, his own personal history of trauma and aggression, he testified to the violence of the Israeli state and denounced the censorship of this lobby, using a potent phrase that I'm not going to repeat here, that carried anti-Semitic resonances. As Jewish students sought to silence him, Almasi dramatically transgressed the implicit rules around safe and civil ways of speaking on campus. He invoked a very different picture of free speech to that encoded in the ideal of rational and reasoned debate. In response to members of the Jewish society who demanded that he condemn Hamas as an Islamist political movement, he shouted, it is intimidation, you know, you saying you are an anti-Semite, you are a racist, you are doing all these evils to us and we are not allowed to scream, we are not allowed to scream. Moments later, the meeting exploded as accusations of fascism were exchanged and this culminated in a physical altercation between student members of the Jewish and Palestine societies. In the immediate aftermath of the event, the police were contacted regarding claims by Jewish students that they felt scared for their safety and the university authorities then publicly investigated these allegations. Meanwhile, of course, the national and international press picked up on the story, reporting that the invited speaker had contravened the students, um, student union's anti-Semitism policy and reporting on the verbal and physical aggression between members of the audience. Now, unfortunately, there isn't time in this talk to offer the kind of in-depth holistic account of what I frame in my writing as the tragic stakes and, and dynamics of this event. So I've included the reference to my book for people who are interested in reading um, about this in more detail. And there I explore how the kinds of passions evoked by the blurring of victims and aggressors in such scenes reveal how these kind of tragically entangled historical injustices associated with histories of European fascism and British imperialism are inherited within what are far from neutral spaces of the so-called enlightened liberal campuses of Western Europe. But for the purposes of today, I just want to focus our attention on the university's response and how this activated a secular vision of civil debate. That the institution became focused on throwing everything it could at containing the dangerously passionate screams of Muslim and Jewish students and activists in the name of free speech. So you can imagine the Abdul Amasi event provoked intense media scrutiny and it, and this was a threat to old universities international reputation and um, the reports in the national and international media um, around the, the glorification of violence um, against the Israeli state in the name of Allah and um, generated responses from elite public figures, members of parliament getting involved, um, communal leaders accusing the university authorities of allowing extremism onto the campus. So the institution responded by adopting a set of national guidelines around external speaker meetings that were drawn from the latest set of controversial UK government guidelines focused on preventing violent extremism on campus. 
And then, some weeks later, this institution attempted what I think of as a restorative ritual by hosting an officially sanctioned, high-profile debate about the academic boycott of, of Israel, the issue of um, an academic boycott of Israeli uh, universities. So after completing the advanced registration for the event, I arrived at Old University on the evening of the debate, and I found a seat amidst an audience marked by what seemed like visible signs of polarized identity-based affiliations, such as Palestinian kafir scarves and Jewish kippahs. And the audience hushed expectantly as two white male academics speaking for and against the motion, this house believes in an academic boycott of Israel, took their seats on the stage. The adjudicator of the debate, who I'll call Professor Chair, a specialist in a seemingly unrelated aspect of European politics, had been requested by the university management and was seated behind a separate table. In a plummy English accent, Professor Chair's opening remarks drew attention to the dynamic of mutual surveillance afforded by the venue. A little bit like this. So he said, I'm delighted to see so many of you here. It's a deceptively large theatre and quite intimate, so we can see you just as easily as you can see us. He continued by firmly circumscribing any excessive impulses amongst speakers and audience members. Each speaker, he explained, would be given an assiduously timed 15 minutes to make their case, followed by a short five-minute rebuttal of each other's position, at which point short audience questions and contributions would be solicited. The audience, he explained in a paternalistic tone, must demonstrate mutual respect of each other's opinions. We are here in an academic institution to engage in serious debate. We will want to listen to the views being put. Otherwise, there's no point in having the debate. And mutual respect means toleration, listening, and I repeat, no heckling or shouting. So if we respect each other's opinions, I look forward to a very worthwhile debate. So in stark contrast to the controversial Palestine Society meeting of the previous term, the university authorities had been actively involved in the careful staging of this debate, stringent entry requirements, official recording, security, and the neutral chairing of the meeting all conforming to the preventing extremism policy guidelines. Supported by Universities UK and the NUS, these guidelines for speaker events on potentially controversial subjects were framed as safeguarding the autonomy of students who were not only vulnerable to racism, but also vulnerable to the threat of being corrupted by dangerously emotive forms of speech associated with radical Islam in particular. So how, you might ask, did the event unfold? Well, centre stage were pre-prepared speeches by the two academic speakers, one of whom promoted while the other denounced the morality of the academic boycott. And with exaggerated civility, each speaker pitched their opposing positions as validating universalist principles, the advancements of science, academic freedom and institutional autonomy. Each, in other words, struggling to speak in the name of secular democracy and freedom and against fundamentalism and racism. Meanwhile, the audience clapped and cheered in support of their favoured speaker and papers rustled as they too drew on pre-prepared scripts and mobilised, weaponized phrases, the singling out of Israel or Israeli apartheid, to contribute 
rhetorical appeals for and against the motion. Soon the drama reached its apex as Professor Chair announced the final vote. Qualifying the process with, you are not a scientific sample, he asked the audience to raise their hands either in support or opposition to the motion. And I sat, fixed in my seat, struck by the rigid either-or choice that this presented. And the result was quickly announced as a victory for the opponents of boycott. So the neutral framing of the debate had itself crystallised the polarisation of the audience and any expression of a third position of uncertainty or ambivalence was foreclosed by the fit structure of the debate format. So in the immediate aftermath of the debate, the student newspaper published an article proclaiming its success. Although the event had not resolved the substantive issues, the article claimed that it had reaffirmed this institution's position as an authentically academic community, stating the professor chairing the evening began with an appeal to reason from the two sides. He asked the audience to sustain a spirit of mutual respect, tolerance and calm. This is an academic institution and this will be an academic debate, he, the chair, said. And afterwards, the event organisers apparently all said they were pleased by the meeting's civil discourse. So carefully stage managed by the institutional authorities, this debate was presented as an exemplary model of academic engagement with the contentious campus politics of Palestine-Israel. It was venerated in a broader sense as a demonstration of the university instantiating enlightenment values of free speech and civility within the public sphere. However, it wasn't the end of the matter, because as the curtain closed on the main act of the boycott debate, a physical altercation broke out between two audience members who were unable to contain their frustrations. And at the very moment when the student media proclaimed a triumph for civility and reason, the Palestine Society publicly invited a speaker who had been accused of Holocaust denial onto the campus, prompting outrage and reigniting the aggressive passions that had been momentarily repressed by the debate. So a few weeks later, I met up with Sadiq, an undergraduate student who described himself as being from a British-Palestinian background. Sadiq was an active member of the Palestine Society Committee that had co-organised the debate. Reflecting on the event, Sadiq explained to me that the result, the victory for the opponents of boycott, had been apparent from the outset in the visible makeup of the room, the showing up of familiar faces holding clear political positions. As he explained to me, nobody's position was changed by the debate itself. The plot was determined in advance and everybody stuck to their scripts. And the outcome was fixed in the claps for and the claps against each speaker. Talking with me a few weeks later, Sadiq described how he'd navigated the decision to participate in relation to circulating accusations of extremism aimed at the Palestine Society. So you'll get groups, he said, who are like not more puritanical, but in their ideological beliefs, they apply that very strictly in terms of practice. So like we can't debate Israelis because it legitimizes them. Then you get people like me who are more pragmatic. 
Writing in the student newspaper, he explained publicly that the Palestine Society was willing to work with groups who we disagree with to expose these disagreements and discuss them in a constructive way. And as Sadiq's friend Yusuf explained to me, being constructive here meant challenging the stereotype of Palestinian activists from Muslim backgrounds as being fanatical or whatever, radical, radicals, terrorists. For students subject to these discourses, it was necessary to circumvent the risk of being identified with radical Islam. And this meant presenting ourselves as acceptable by demonstrating restrained detachment, not getting too personal, not getting angry, framing all arguments in terms of universal rational principles. Yet as I talked with Sadiq, I began to learn about the costs of this rigid and stylized format. Costs both for individuals and for the capacity for meaningful conversations within the university. Sadiq explained that when the Palestine Society first floated the idea for this debate, it had been intended to address internal differences amongst their group over whether to support academic boycott. Furthermore, he described how he himself felt conflicted about the question of academic boycott. He had mixed feelings about the issue. Yet once the format was changed to this agonistic public debate with members um, of the Jewish society, Sadiq raised his hand in support of the boycott, conforming to the logical pro-Palestinian position demanded of him. So on the surface, then, I want to suggest the academic boycott debate looks like an exemplary performance of reasoned, civil, um, ri uh, rigorous academic speech, the kinds of activities that our universities are supposedly all about. But what happens when we move away from this institutionally endorsed vision and model of free speech and think about what the event did to the university as a space of learning? Listening to Sadiq's perspective reveals how this stylized model of free speech as rigorous debate frames freedom as the right to make a categorical and dispassionate judgment about right and wrong. It is a model that paradoxically demands that we, as subjects of secular free speech, stick to what Vina Das terms frozen scripts in our engagement with Palestine-Israel. This means not deviating from the reasoned forms of speech demanded in a secular public space, not risking the passions or particularities associated with the histories, theologies, and moral traditions that actually motivate our personal interests in these questions of justice. So the model of rigorous debate as the right to express predetermined opinions, demands that we leave particular aspects of ourselves, including our religious inheritances, outside of the room. And even more than this, it prevents a student, such as Sadiq, from expressing the complexity, uncertainty, and ambivalence that is necessary for meaningful democratic conversations, for the possibility of political learning and change. Now, before saying more about what I learned from Sadiq, let me check how much time I've got for this. Um, I just want to note a resonance between his account and the experiences of two Jewish undergraduates, who are called Justin and Ella, who were also involved with the old university debate. So when I initially met with Justin and Ella, they also emphasised their compliance with secular commitments to reasoned debate, even contrasting offensive Palestine society stunts with the Jewish society, who they said, do all our events to the book. However, when I came to ask how Israel had come to be important to them, a different picture emerged. 
Justin spoke of his frustration at the demand placed on Jewish students to maintain a rigid separation between Jewish and Zionist activities on campus. He talked about growing up in an Orthodox Jewish diasporic community which framed a messianic relationship to Israel. And he said, part of me still finds that very hard to let go, even though he was also struggling with what he felt were the the serious difficulties with that relationship to Israel. And when I clumsily asked Ella why it seems so hard for Jewish students to articulate the role of religion or faith in their activism, she responded by questioning the very framing of Zionism in terms of the religious-secular distinction. So she said, I think it's just really complicated. It's issues that people are uncomfortable with dealing with and maybe feel not educated enough to deal with them, and people are scared. You know, it's like the actions of a Zionist entity government rather than like a connection of a people to a spiritual homeland for many, many years. It's a different terminology, a different way of understanding it, which makes it easier, I don't know, to talk about it, I suppose. As such, for Muslim and Jewish students alike, though in different ways, the model of free speech as rigorous debate shuts down the voicing and exploration of important aspects of their inheritances, connections and concerns with this conflict. It silenced the expression of religious or spiritual histories and inheritances as a condition of participation in this secular community of free speech. So in 2013, a few years after these events, I met up with Sadiq again. He had recently graduated and now freed up by the distance from his pressurised role as a representative of the Student Palestine Society, it seemed he felt more able to speak out of the Islamic traditions which he explained were part of his inheritance. I learned how, many months after the boycott debate, Sadiq had participated in a seminar about hate speech on campus that was organised by an interfaith organisation. And in that context, Sadiq had sought to articulate an Islamic conception of the ethics of speech, which subtly diverged from the juridical model outlined by a representative of the Student Atheist Society at the same event. He described the ways in which Islamic traditions recognize the power of speech to unintentionally hurt and undermine people who are already situated within unequal social and interpersonal contexts. He talked about an Islamic ethical framing of our responsibility to somehow recognize each other as equal participants within public life to enable each other to more fully participate and express ourselves. So in this way, Sadiq introduced an ethics of speech which challenged the assumption that speech is primarily propositional and that freedom is a property of autonomous individuals who can be imagined in abstraction from their personal and social relationships. Rather, he gestured towards a different understanding of free speech as somehow dependent on the quality of the relationships between those involved in speaking and listening. Reflecting on Sadiq's words, I was struck by a connection with the work of a student-led Israel-Palestine dialogue group at a different institution where I'd been conducting research. Here, students had also cultivated alternative ways of speaking, which contrasted with the ideal of free speech as depersonalised, dispassionate debate. 
Their students had developed conversations over time in which they came to reflect on their own investments in these ossified, frozen narratives. And they'd shared personal histories and learned to trust each other as caring rather than detached interlocutors so that it became possible to move beyond well-worn inherited scripts to speak, we might say, in their own voices. Leo, a Jewish student who facilitated this nominally secular forum, told me how his approach drew on his education within a Jewish youth movement. And this had helped him to shape and frame practices of voicing, questioning, and interpreting political narratives and scripts that were rooted in his experience of Jewish ritual life and textual learning. So reflecting on this, a couple of things struck me. First, a resonance between the work of Sadiq and Leo and a body of critical work that um, I flagged up here on the slide in anthropology that has studied secularism as a constellation of ideas, institutions, and affective, that is, bodily dispositions that are rooted in a kind of dominant post-Protestant enlightenment morality. So as anthropologist Sabah Mahmoud argues in a reading that I've put up for anyone who, who's interested to follow up on this. Um, secularism, this, this way of understanding secularism, invokes a picture of freedom, language, and truth in which an individual can and should be able to stand apart from any claim about what is right and good and to autonomously choose whether to speak as a Jew, a Muslim, or in a more desirable, neutral capacity. Mm. Um, and to choose whether to assent to propositions, such as whether the academic boycott of Israel is right or wrong. But as Mahmoud highlights, and as Sadiq and Leo highlighted to me, this secularised Protestant picture is not the only way of framing the relations between truth, knowledge and selfhood. In contrast, both Islamic and Jewish traditions offer very different pictures of how we are formed as ethical subjects in relation to the power of speech, the right and the good, which challenge the image that we are discrete, autonomous beings, highlighting instead our mutual dependence and our ethical responsibilities to each other. So rather than go on in this abstract way, let me illustrate with the words of Sadiq, who explained this at the interfaith meeting on hate speech as follows. He said, there are certain points of our identity that are so central to our being, I think religion is one of them, that if someone was to undermine or attack that aspect of our identity, they will under undermine our ability to participate in public life. One thing that is striking to me as I've dwelled on Sadiq's words over the years is how he was not just talking about Muslim identity, but rather showing what it can mean to speak as a Muslim inheriting a tradition. So he became able to say, I think Islam recognises the power of speech. And it was not amidst the institutionalized spectacle of the free speech debate that he could say this, but in the marginal space of an interfaith event where he could begin to find a voice in an Islamic register. Now, there's something more to say about this, because speaking of religious identity is often taken to signal the closure of debate. So this was something that Bobby Duffy highlighted, the idea being that when people claim an affront to their identity rather than an opinion, um, they do so to shut down criticism, debate, or dialogue. But in speaking as a Muslim in an Islamic voice, 
Sadiq was, I want to suggest, engaged in a different kind of endeavour. So we can situate his words against the backdrop of what um, the Jamaican-born British sociologist Stuart Hall has named the experience of deracination, the uprootedness of diasporic citizens from our cultural, religious and spiritual traditions. And this is a condition that shapes the lives of many members of our academic communities, including many of us who identify as Muslims and Jews. So as Stuart Hall evocatively expressed, the striving to recover marginalised and ruptured languages and um, epistemologies, approaches to knowledge, is a risky and restless process in which identities, religious, spiritual, political, are real, but are not fixed and known in advance. So for those of us, those many of us whose lives have been shaped by histories of rupture, uprootedness, marginalisation, religious and spiritual identities can be something to be discovered within communities of learning, of spaces such as, we might hope, the campus itself. I began this talk by highlighting the risk associated with speaking about Palestine-Israel um, in this series, the risks for me of speaking about this. For reasons that I've touched on already, any public talk on this question of abnormal justice touches on traumas and passions that mean that it can be very hard for people to listen in an open way. So as an audience, each of you are no doubt carrying very different investments and connections to this topic, and your own experiences of the static scripts and the institutional conventions that can block our attempts to take risks in our speech and listen in an open way to receive each other's words. And my focus in this talk has been to take this case to open the broader question of what forms of free speech do we want to prioritise and to cultivate as members of a pedagogic community. The further question I want to pose is what does it mean for us not just to express preformed opinions in line with the conventions of rig rigorous debate, but to frame our universities as spaces in which members of communities can find a voice? So I'm inspired here by the writings of anthropologist Vina Das, for whom finding a voice is about forging belonging within one's culture. That is, allowing students such as Sadiq to connect with and speak out of marginalised religious traditions. And a key insight offered by Vina and shared by the sociologist Les Back is that finding a voice depends on the presence of others receptive to listening without the kinds of judgment that force us back to the safe ground of these lifeless, frozen scripts. A final thought is that Sadiq's call for voices to be heard in an equal way pushes us to address the asymmetries structuring apparently neutral conventions regarding who should participate in our university communities and how. So in the opening lecture of the series, Dan drew this really fascinating etymological connection between the word radical and that of roots. And through my research and more recently through my collaborative work with students and staff, in the Theology and Religious Studies Department at King's, I'm learning of the varied and rich religious and spiritual roots and roots, as in journeys, of so many members of our community. So in amplifying the voices of 
these marginalised traditions of ethics, knowledge and speech on the campus, my hope is to cultivate an alternative vision of free speech in the university. And I would hope that this would not look like a juridical space concerned with protecting the rights of autonomous agents to demonstrate their knowledge, but rather a pedagogic community in which we can learn about ourselves and develop our voices and listen more deeply and learn to receive each other's words. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.